1: So Smart Podcast, episode
0: 172.
1: In this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we sit down with one of the original cyberpunks, the famed journalist, documentarian, media theorist, and all around technology superstar weirdo, Douglas Rushkoff. He will talk about his new book, Team Human. Rushkoff coined the terms viral media, digital native, social currency, and he is currently a professor of media theory and digital economics at the City University of New York. He's a titan of talking about technology. Team Human is his 10th book, and it's about, um, well, it's a bit of a manifesto. In it, he makes a case for returning to the cyberpunk ethos, which is, in a way, the psychonaut ethos. Today, the counterculture he imagines would revolt against the algorithms that are slowly altering our behavior for the benefit of shareholders mainly. And he urges us to instead build a digital psychedelic substrate that embraces the messiness of human beings, our unpredictability, our pursuit of novelty and innovation, and our primate-animal social connectedness. The book is presented in a series of aphorisms that add up to a rallying cry for building communities outside of what the algorithms might suggest we build, and as the title suggests, He wants us to turn our attention to teamwork. Rushkoff says in the book that any technology whose initial purpose is to connect people will eventually become colonized and repurposed to repress and isolate them. But over time, we've seen this pattern so often, we can build something else. And in this interview, you will hear his thoughts on this, the book, and so much more. So let's pick his brain. To talk to you. I've uh, all I have followed your stuff all it feels like my entire life. No,
0: um, oh, so have I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I've
1: um, I, I remember, and, uh, and forgive me if, if I'm like totally off here, but I think I remember uh, something you did about uh, selling out and how that had changed over the years, and um. I had uh I remember telling lots of people about that and and then when I saw your book I was like I wonder if you if it, if you used that phrase anywhere in here and you did and I was
0: like ah uh, oh I did oh that's good yeah well cuz it was that um I did that frontline show generation like and yeah. I had gotten on the uh, it happened kind of coincidentally cuz I was looking at um I was I was uh chronicling Tyler Oakley who's this Facebook celebrity who uses his entire show to hawk product, and he kind of pretends that he's just like, oh, I wish Taco Bell would have a new flavor of taco. I'm going to talk to them. And, of course, the whole thing is staged. And I asked, uh, I started asking sort of fans of his, teens that I would meet, well, do, don't you care that he's you know, a sellout? Doesn't that mean anything to you? And they didn't know what sellout meant. So then I just started to interview. Whenever I would interview a kid, I would say, what's the word sellout mean? And they would never know. They'd go, uh, like when you're, you, you sold out all the, the tickets at a concert or, uh, so there was just no concept of it, which was, that was interesting to me in itself.
1: Yeah, that shook me because I remember, um, I think I came of age in a time when that was like, your one of the most defining, uh, values, right. Of, uh. Uh, like I re- especially the stand-up comedians that I remember as a kid, uh, Bill Hicks and George Carlin, and mm. um, the grunge era and all that stuff was all about like whatever you do, never ever sell out. And there, I remember there was an like, argument between Patton Oswald and some other comedians about you know uh, doing different kinds of movies. Um, David uh, Cross had done like. Uh, the uh, Chipmunks movies, and they were like mm-hmm. having this like discussion of like, well, you sold out, man. And he's and, and
0: I know, boy, back it, then a tiny thing could get you blacklisted by the counterculture. But you know, it's because we were we were sort of raised in the Reagan era, and we saw Reagan, and between Reagan and Clinton, we saw the baby boomers who were always to the left of us, and so you know, friggin' hippie valued, you know. They, they sold out to such an extreme, you know, they, they all just got their sobs and their Volvos and turned into, <laughs> you know, yuppie scum. And, you know, So those of us who stayed behind and, you know, and we're more like Rick Linkletter slacker fans. Yeah. You know, the real Generation X, you know, we... Uh, uh, Somehow selling out was the work seemed to be the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah,
1: and now it's not even like close. Like even in, I've, you know, in my own like trajectory, like I've slowly warmed up to the idea that like well, you know this is how the game is played now, and the audience is is savvy enough to know if you're still you know producing stuff from an authentic like passionate standpoint, and they know how hard it is, and the gig economy, and everything on top of each other, it's, it, it feels almost like it's the audience that got savvy and freed. I mean, is it, it seems freeing. What do you think?
0: Well, the the audience got freed to what? To listen to sellouts? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and, then the, and the artist got freed to, like, I'll do this for money, and then I'll do this for me, and I'll do this for money, and I'll do this for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess. Although there also became a, a virtue of selling out, you know, when when the the rap and hip hop movements kind of shifted in their mm. frame of empowerment towards bling, you know, and you would see, you know, hip hop artists get up at the uh, at the Grammys and thank all of these sort of industry professionals that we didn't even necessarily know exist. You know, or they just talk about, you know, how much money they made and when their next thing is coming out and what the date is that you're there was sort of this idea that, well, you know, embracing business and capitalism is kind of a step towards empowerment, maybe. And, you know, Hmm. but then it turned into this kind of, you know, Kanye Kardashian nightmare. And uh, I don't know. You know, I I it doesn't. It doesn't seem like the path of the artist to me. The, the path of the artist should be to wake people up from you know, the the nightmare that we're living in, whatever it's caused by. And if it's today, if it's corporate capitalism, which it really is, that's threatening the very survival of the species, then someone making art you know, should be trying to help people wake up from that.
1: Mm. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if it will cycle back around again. And uh, you mentioned that a lot in the book, the idea of, of cycles and being sort of um – the the, uh, moving away from the, the Whig history, linear progressive ideas to to seeing, seeing titles, uh, title forces. And, and, and I wonder if we will come back around to being angry at sellouts again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we could, It, it, it would, I mean, I don't know that we have to be angry at anybody. I think we can, we can, you know, understand. It's just when it gets so extreme, it's like, how wealthy do they have to be before they can, uh, uh, kind of pivot towards something else. Like, yeah. like uh, uh, you know, and you look at it more, I guess, in the dot-com world. You know, How after, like, when, when Zuckerberg had earned his first billion, could he have pivoted? You know, is it safe enough with one billion to pivot away from these extractive sorts of policies? You know, could he look at, you know, or two billion or ten billion? You know, when do you feel safe enough? To change things, or you know, did the pursuit of those billions, you know, so so, uh, you know, lock him up into a certain trajectory that you know that he can't make Facebook a force for good? I
1: don't know. Like I, I feel like that that he's uh, that his. I can't tell how much control he actually is exerting over his like in his creation, and how much it's controlling him at this point. Like how much of it is justification, how much of it is by design at this point. It's, it's, right. Uh,
0: it's just so hard when you when you do something that young. I mean, I complained as a young person, you know, that oh, you know, no one's buying my. I, I can't sell a book. I can't do this. But on the other hand, you know, having had to wait until I was you know 33 to have any sort of success in in writing you know it was kind of a blessing because even then I was really sort of too immature to be doing the sorts of things I was asked to do and to talk to the people I was talking to but at least I was 33 I had a graduate degree I had studied I knew something about history and cycles um, I was still too optimistic and crazy and and uh, I still believe we were uh, you know in a in a Well, we still could be, but I I was still under the the notion that we were experiencing some kind of a discontinuity or a renaissance of unprecedented magnitude, you know, rather than just another, uh, you know, another historical turn of the cycle.
1: Oh, okay. Well, this is good. This is the best segue into the book, (laughs) because I didn't know what to make of the book at first. I'm going to tell you the truth. I read it, and... um, I was like, is this a Luddite kind of thing? Is this Pollyannish? Is this a, a call to action? Is this a, um, um, as my editor said, is this one of those things where you're just holding up a mirror to the chaos of the world? All these things. And it was, um, and then, but you start right out with saying, find the others. And then, like, deep into the book, you sort of pay off the reader with, like, that's why I said that in the beginning. And, and it right. was, um, and it's, um. It's neat in that is uh, you come out swinging and you have a very strong argument that um, instead of something that gives you answers, it helps you raise more questions and that um, and that that very human that very human appeal to a type of because um, here's the thing um, I was uh, uh, taking notes while I'm reading your book right and then I was also uh, trying to finish the the new Star Trek Discovery uh, in, uh, also when I was in my off time.
0: What did you get? Did you get it for free, like as a review thing?
1: Oh no, no, I did not. I was, I was merely curious as to was it good or not,
0: and it wasn't. It's the Star Trek they didn't let me watch. Which one is they it? The new Star Trek. You got to like subscribe to CBS. It's like who does that to Star Trek?
1: I know, I know. And it, and it came out on it just came out on iTunes, and that's how I was able to like watch it for money. Yeah, Pay for money for Star paid, Trek. Yes. It's yes. crazy. It's crazy. Right. And I'm just saying, this is that's a crime against humanity. I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. <laughs> and, and and watching it, I'm like, oh well, this makes sense because this is the kind of Star Trek you'd have to pay for, uh, okay. because it's just an action. It's just one long action movie, and with very with with no like the, the humanist values are hardly in there at all. And um, but they also play all those tricks where you're like encouraged to get to the next episode and get to the end of it, and um, and uh, I was just so happy to be reading that part of your book at the same time that was mm-hmm. like the difference between uh, sp- something that can be spoiled versus the difference between something that can't be spoiled and whether or not. And I was thinking about my piece of technology is I'm using it either for creative purposes, for getting ready for this interview, or I'm using it to watch this show that I actually don't like. <laughs> like I'm only, mm-hmm. I'm only watching it to get to the end of it because it's like got its hooks in me. To, like you got to see how it ends. Maybe it is good at the end.
0: Right, um, that's sort of it's like a bag of cheese doodles. It's just like engineered to make you get to the, you know, bottom of the of the of the bag. Yeah, and uh, so I'll start there. I think that's a fun thing to talk
1: about. Is that, um, and I'll just let you rant as long as you want. You can go to as many nested tangents as you need to. Um, yeah. The um, you make a case for like it's really nice that you know the fact that we are. Um, cautious about spoiling content for people who we may not even know Uh, there's some virtue in that and there's a difference between that kind of engineered content that can be spoiled and the kind of content that you could never spoil it because it asks questions it it, it raises questions in the audience so if you could just talk about that at, at any length you want
0: yeah I mean I mean for a long I mean I was a theater kid that's what I did from from 11 to 30 in my life. I was a theater director. And the thing that always used to bother me about theater was the sort of beginning middle end, this closed narrative, the way that, that you know, you have to excite the audience and then give them an answer. And it seemed that giving people answers, that uh, concluding, giving them that sense of closure was was not only artificial, but kind of dangerous. It kind of addicted people to only feel satisfied when something's Concluded and and dead and you know very uh, th- these are very linear uh, understandings of narrative and uh, it seemed to me that great art you know and and for me uh, the the current example would be say David Lynch mm. you know Lynch doesn't answer there is no conclusion there is no uh, official moral to the story um, that that. What he's doing is opening up spaces of of awe and wonder and confusion, and that's where human beings excel. Computers are really good at closure, at deciding is this a one or a zero. That's all fuzzy logic is. It's 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 getting to that resolution, that that um, uh, fidelity through clarity, mm. through through perfect. Uh, Perfect memory and perfect reproduction. So if computers do that, what do humans do? Humans do something else. Humans can embrace and sustain ambiguity and ambivalence. That's where the weird, quirky, liminal, strange places of what it means to be human are. And it's, it's, I understand why we want to quell those because they can be uncomfortable and they're open ended and they're strange and they're squishy. But that's where uh, what makes us special lies. That's where the uniquely human happens. And my, my, teachers and the the professionals in in Hollywood and all will say oh well if this is what the audience wants this is why it's more popular this is what they'll pay for and if you want to be paid to make art then you've got to give you know dance and 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 give them a, a happy ending or a conclusion or kill everybody or get to the end you know and have it have one clear ending or uh and and to me, the sort of capitalism and and the entertainment industry as a whole, of course, is more consonant with those kinds of stories because that's the story of capitalism. That's the story of consumption. It's fake, but it's like just buy this one thing on TV and then you'll feel good. Mm. You know, get this bigger house. Get this better car and then you'll be okay and then it's fine. We we know that that's not true, but you know, we can't help and, and a lot of people can't help but still buy into it, but still go to the, you know, the car dealer or the blockbuster or best buy or wherever it is to get that um, to get that thing. And I wanted to really distinguish between this sort of open-ended art of an Escher or a Kubrick or a, 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 a Kadinsky or 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 David Lynch or um, Zadie Smith these people whose books and movies can't have spoilers the only thing that could have a spoiler would be art that's about money you know so a spoiler is kind of like an intellectual property landmine. Mm. You know, so once you've watched episode 17, you've exploded that landmine. But now you have that intellectual property. If you tell someone else, then you're spoiling that Netflix series for that person. And worse, you are devaluing the IP for Netflix or Amazon or whoever it is that's depending on those little spoiler bombs to go off in the right <laughs> in the right sequence. And that's kind of silly. I yeah. mean, is it's, there a spoiler in, in twin peaks? Is there a spoiler in, in, uh, uh, eyes wide shut? You know, <laughs> it's like, no, it's like, what happened? <laughs> I've seen it and I still can't give you a spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. Uh, right. Because it, it's not, because it doesn't have an answer as such, you know? And, and if we don't, if we, if we don't have space in our art and culture for answerless questions, then we certainly aren't going to have the tolerance for them in our world. You know, and that's the real world that we're living in is dealing with unanswerable questions. How do we deal with poverty? How do we deal with, with climate? How do we deal with these Chronic, ongoing sorts of problems that aren't going to be definitively, completely solved. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I feel like this is like that. For me, that really helped me. the The book really gelled in that moment because it, it's uh, you, you make a lot of you 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 describe a lot of things that 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 add up, and, and sort of the format of the book is is set up that way with the aphorism format, right? And it's sort of a death by a thousand cuts kind of thing where you're like okay I'm really this is really gelling here where the the idea of these algorithms and these um, institutions trying to predict human behavior and like maximize whatever it is their goals are and then turning around and now they're like actually influencing human behavior toward those goals instead of just trying to make sense of them or understand them there's it reminded me of there's Evan um, his name Evan Williams the the Twitter guy was right. right. He said that um, if you drive down the road and you see a car crash, you're going to look. Everybody's going to look, but you know the internet interprets that as that's what everybody wants, and so it supplies that because that's guaranteed engagement. And then then you end right. up in the internet that's just car crashes, and you sort of talk about that in your memetic warfare. Um, so I'd like to, if you could speak to that element of the book about mimetic warfare and how these algorithms are, have like figured out how, how to sort of piggyback on these visceral um, responses to a certain kind of uh, content. And then now it's w- sort of warping the way we interact with one another and the internet itself.
0: Well. It's not just, uh, I mean, it's not just the algorithms that are doing that. It's, it's our president who's doing that. Mm. You know, this is the, the, the formula of reality TV, say, is to take footage of real life and then edit it and recombine it in such a way as to tell a sensationalist car crash-like story no matter what really happened. So you sort of edit reality to make it more sensationalist so that people stop with the remote and look at, you know, the girl being embarrassed or the guy being, you know, run over or whatever, that, that, that whatever we want to concoct. So uh, it's really hard for reality, which may be boring at times or confusing or unresolved to compete against what, you know, what, what Trump or another politician might say happened so you you it's it's sort of this competition and this is what memetics is at this point it's a competition for whose words go on top of that picture so you see a picture of a bunch of poor people walking with little packs and you look at that picture on msnbc and it says you know Migrant caravan, refugees, hungry, um, you know, uh, mothers and children, you know, escaping violence and rape, looking for safe haven. You know? And then, you know, you go onto Fox and you can see Trump's label on that, which is America is being invaded. Mm-hmm. And which is going to stick more? Which is going to create a faster, better sensationalist hit? It's the one. It's that label. Invasion. In, oh my God! We're being invaded. We're being invaded. Let's build a wall. Let's do this. Let's get some guns. and send down the army. Invasion. Invasion. You know, that when that label sticks, whether it's you know the crooked Hillary or crazy Bernie or whatever those labels are, um, the, the, those are more uh, mimetically effective because they they resonate with uh, uh, sort of archetypal deep. Psychological fears. They um, use, whether consciously or not, they use simple neurolinguistic programming tricks, like taking two words. I did this when I when I came up with the phrase media virus. It was to do that to take two words that had been unassociated, put them together, and that sort of creates a new slot in a person's brain. It creates a kind of an openness, and I was doing it. Uh, uh, And I said in the book here, I am now doing it Um, and watch. This is going to catch on Um, because what I'm I'm, I've used the technique of viral media to promote the idea of viral media or what it was. But that's that's what algorithms do. That's what they I mean. And they don't do it through the common sense or through the uh, some sense of nurturing humanity. Of, well, we have to help people get off smoking, or we have to stop teen pregnancy, or we have to, you know, uh, uh, get human beings to be more compassionate with one another. And they're not thinking about it that way. They're just doing get eyeballs, get attention, create mm-hmm. sensation by any means necessary. So they're going to follow that path regardless of where it takes us as a species.
1: Well, this, so I think that. Um I look at that and I was looking and thinking about what you talked about when it came to um, art that had answers and art that's that's geared toward, you know, it's being engineered like a bag of, uh, you know, <laughs> like a bag of cheese doodles. Um, and then algorithms, I think the creepiest part of the book is this, this part where you talk about um, when algorithms are trying to sort people by type or by category and that way they can predict what. Uh, ads that will work on them in the future on their personal timeline because people who are of this type tend to do this next thing in their life. Um, you talked about the probability that somebody would go on a diet might be somewhere in like the eighty percent range, and but if you target ads toward them, you might push them, you know, into the ninety percent range. And, and there was this—it sloughs off that twenty percent of unpredictability and humanity. Uh, people who buck norms or people who do unpredictable things and. Um, this whole idea of the algorithm, by way of prediction, altering the thing that it predicts, um, that really creeps me out, man.
0: Yeah, it's a little upsetting because, I mean, I, I was, I came up with that as I was trying to explain to people why algorithms are a problem. In other words, if they're just getting you the kind of toothpaste that you really want, or that you wanted all along. Then what's the problem there? You know, and oh, and I wanted gel toothpaste, and I didn't even know it because it knows the kind of person I am. But what what doesn't work about it is the fact that it's not completely accurate. The fact that these algorithms, at best, are eighty percent accurate as to what we're going to do, whether that we're going to uh, you know find out that we're gay, get divorced, go on a diet go to college, whatever whatever choice it might be, when they start using the probability of our future choice um, to begin changing our news feed, what they're doing is not just advertising a particular product to us. They're not just trying to get us to go on Jenny Craig diet instead of Weight Watchers or to go to Harvard instead of Yale. They're trying to make sure that we behave true to the algorithmically derived statistical profile. Because if they can get the 80% accuracy up to 90%, if they can get another 10% of us to do what they think we're supposed to do, then they've removed all that anomalous behavior. They've removed all that unpredictable stuff, all those new and novel solutions. And that's a dangerous thing. We don't want to iron out human ingenuity and human innovation and weirdness because it's the weird who are going to save us you know, mm-hmm. it's the, it's the weird who are going to take humanity into uh, into new and strange directions so we don't want to be muting the the human unpredictability at a time when we most need it
1: well this is the, this is really comes to the core of what the book talks about is this um, you know being the weirdness of humanity and the ambiguity, both in how we behave and how we uh, interpret um, our reality, and how we affect reality, and how we affect change, and how we are connected to one another, uh, you, you your sort of central thesis speaks of something a lot, of, which is the idea that we create these tech, these technologies, and then we create the they them these marketplaces, uh, and technology could be from language all the way up to the internet, and and then institutions and then those things that were built to connect us start to disconnect us because they contain what you call an anti-human agenda. So what what do you what is this for people who are we're trying to get into this idea. What is the anti-human agenda to you?
0: I mean, well, it depends. I mean, so so you're right. I mean, I think I used to and I, certainly when I was a kid, I used to think that You know, we solve our problems by coming up with some new thing, you know, whether it's radio or print or television or the telegraph or the internet, and then this new thing will unleash the real human potential and let us fight the bad stuff and the institutions and the mindsets that are keeping us all down. But um, what I didn't realize was that uh, none of these new inventions or things are intrinsically um, good, that they're not you know they're not necessarily pro social unless they're used in pro social ways so you know, we developed text you know we the the ability to write and the first thing we did with it was keep track of slaves you know and and ownership so it's like well wait a minute you know we get radio and we have it as sort of a ham radio thing for maybe 10 or 20 years and then it becomes uh, the way that that hitler took control of his of his nation, you know, or television, which we thought was going to be for education, ends up creating consumer society. Or the internet, which was supposed to be about breaking through and making connections with other other humans and networking, has become a uh, a system of surveillance and social control. So, how does that happen? Well, it depends how far back you want to trace it. You know, for for me today, it feels like um, you know, unbridled corporate capitalism is is the problem Mm -hmm. that when you have and this is sort of what my last book throwing rocks the google bus was about that you can have a great smart bottom-up technology like google developed out of a dorm room at stanford but once they've taken you know a few tens of millions of dollars from investors who want to make a few billions of dollars off that investment you know if they want a hundred x or a thousand x return on their investment you're gonna to have to create an a really evil extractive platform <laughs> that you're not looking to make a sustainable business. You know, if you just wanna make one billion, you know, then maybe you'll be okay. But if you need to make a hundred billion, you're gonna to have to do some nastiness. It's just it's just how it goes. It was the 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 Twitter problem. you know, and I always talk about when I saw Evan Williams, who is a friend of mine, when I saw him on the cover of The Wall Street Journal with that number, you know four point six billion under his face, which was what he made the morning of the Twitter IPO, all I could think was, this guy is screwed. Mm-hmm. You know how is he going to make back that money for these people off a one hundred and forty character messaging app? You know, they would have been fine as a multimillion dollar company and and so successful and so wonderful. but they can't help but be screwy when they've got to try to, uh, uh, you know, sustain that valuation. It's 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 kind of impossible. So I look at at growth based capitalism, the the idea that we've got to make money, more money, no matter what, as part of the problem. So it means okay, if we want to make all this money, we've got to source our rare earth minerals for our smartphones and our computers by you know using slaves in Africa or we're going to have to dispose of stuff in giant land heaps in Brazil and China or we're going to have to make sure our companies don't have any human workers that the only way to scale up is to have algorithms do everything and you end up with these companies that their sole purpose is to extract value from marketplaces, from people and places and deliver them up uh, to to shareholders. And that's that's how we get. Uh, this sort of devastation that we're that we're experiencing today I mean does it go further back than that Well yeah I mean some people blame agriculture that you know once we stopped hunting and gathering and settled down and uh, and we're you know uh, kind of fighting over land and whose land is it and dealing with the difference between a, a commons and a, 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 a and an enclosed uh uh, owned piece of land that that you know that that became the conflict. Others go even further back to to the sedentary lifestyle. To once we once we had homes that we wanted to protect, and women were kept in the home, and you know men would go out. That that sort of set up the the imbalances that we're still. Uh, wrestling with today, when the difference between your kind of private self at home and whatever you're doing, and 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 uh, uh, thinking of your family over your your friends, you know, and because they're they blood relations and lineage, and um, so you know, it depends where you know where where it goes to, but the common thread in any of these is looking at well, where do the where does the innovation, whether it's a technological one or a media one or a cultural one, where does it stray from helping us organize and socialize and work together to isolating us and leading us to want to compete against one another rather than work with each other. And mm-hmm. you know, this last this last one made it really easy to see because the internet in just, you know, 10 20 years went from this dream of a of a connected collective uh, uh, human organism to one of utter isolation, alienation and atomization where we each live in our own silo with our own, you know, algorithmic feed. I mean you couldn't see this this divisiveness happening any more clearly and that's why then you know I ended up writing that piece or doing the TED talk about the billionaires I met because they are are literally trying to use their money to escape from the rest of us they mm-hmm. believe that civilization is doomed thanks to their own activity and that the best they can do now is create some kind of a shelter or escape pad or upload their consciousness to get away, um, as individuals from the rest of the human organism.
1: Mm -hmm. There is this sense, and I feel this has trickled down, or it's, it's, it's cascaded somehow through the network, because there is that, like, I remember the, I mean, I, I, I hearken, it's, it's really funny, I can, like, back in my day, you had to do this, like, it, you know that feeling of like trying to return to the land is 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 part of if you've been an internet citizen for a long time you remember the Wild West weirdness of it and then and then it turns into a shopping mall and you um, you feel that um, that sense that oh no it's been ruined and it's um, you talk about the the uncanny valley I thought that was a really great part of the book where. Um, all sorts of things start to enter the, the uncanny valley. Even like Facebook in the beginning was this had that a little bit of a wild west feel to it, and then now it's got that uncanny valley feel. where like this isn't real human interaction, and Twitter sometimes feels that way, and um, everything can feel that way. Eventually, that suburban strangeness, and I. It it seems like, as you're saying with these with the billionaires, that the one of the knee-jerk reactions to it is just say people are terrible. And that 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 it's it's the messiness of human psychology that's causing all of it. But you make a different argument that is like, No, we should steer into the to the messiness of humanity.
0: Right. Um which It's th- the messiness that we're afraid of. I mean, the example I always use is um you know, back when uh, uh, my wife had our, our daughter, uh, we got a professional lactation consultant. Mm. You know, and these these women who then teach you like how to breastfeed and stuff. And they're licensed and, you know, you can get your insurance to pay for them and whatever. And it struck me as strange because there's so many sort of old women around who will show you. They're just r- regular old women who had, like, nine kids and know how it works, you know. But if you let the old woman down the hall, you know, in your apartment house in Brooklyn, if you let her come and show you how to do this, it's messy then. Well, what do you owe her? You know, or she's seen your breasts. Or, you know, it's like then when, you know, when it's the, the holiday time, she's going to want to come over and sing show tunes and play your piano or be part of your life. And... That's our fear. And that's so sad because that should be our goal. You know, that should be what we long for. Yeah. And all the stuff, all that messy intimacy of other humans, you know, that's the stuff that now, you know, we watch weird, you know, fake ethnic series on Netflix or Amazon to sort of remember what that. Or to imagine what it would be like to actually have people in your life who just walk in the back door and hang out in your home. And uh, it's so funny that we look at that as this, this dirty, messy, strange thing to avoid. So no, I I believe that we've been trained. We've been trained to look at a gift that someone actually made for us with their hands. Where do we look down on that compared to a an Amazon gift card where you can get what you really want? It it's uh it's it's sad to me, but yeah, what I'm trying to do is to reify that messy weird stuff that eye contact. And those moments of eye contact where you don't really know what the other person means? Do they like me? That's actually I oh it sounds like blasphemy. That's actually fun. That's where the <laughs> yeah, that, the point. That's the excitement. I mean, I, I was on the, the they call it the Metro in, in Paris. This is like must have been two years ago, and uh, the people look at you when you're sitting there and I'm just like, Oh my God. It's like, what happened here? It's like, am I sexy or something? And they're not looking at me cause they actually want me to go home with, I don't think, but everybody's just checking each other out and making eye contact and having all of these. Um, it'd be so hard to do that in New York right now. They would mm. arrest you, you know, but it's so um, flirtatious. And I don't mean that in, in, the pickup way, it's just, uh, it was so alive with possibility and people watching and observation. And, uh, you know, and I come back and I walk in the streets in Midtown and everybody's staring into their phone. You know, the the when I can find another person, it feels like I'm part of this conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's another one. There's a person who's looking up, who's actually hoping to make eye contact with someone else in the street today. Well, what do
1: you think of this uh I've heard people uh try to like argue against this, and I don't know where I stand honestly, but the people that you know you'll see a picture of a bunch of people in the nineteen thirties on a train and they're all have their heads buried in a newspaper, and then they put that next to people with their heads buried in their phones and they say see mm. they like see it's it's no different or they talk about you know if somebody has their head buried in a phone. They're interacting with people they know on social media, or they—they're not completely disengaged from the human experience. They're just experiencing it in a new and different way, and they're saying like, "You are a luddite. You're just—you uh, just don't like technology." What do you, what is your pushback against that?
0: Luddites love technology. They just didn't like technology that was being used by corporations to extract value and enslave people. So a luddite can love a smartphone, but hate a Facebook algorithm that's programming the smartphone's user, Mm. right? So there's, there's a difference. And I would say that, you know, the difference between somebody sitting and reading the New York times on a streetcar, um, and somebody being engrossed in a smartphone first, they're, chances are they're not texting with some other person uh, if they're, <laughs> they're, they're stuck in some uh, mind loop uh, <laughs> you know that that the thing is done um, you know yeah you know, I don't have I don't have a problem particularly on a subway uh, uh, with people sitting and reading or doing something they got their long commute and they want to be entertained or they've got their little headphones and they're watching Netflix um, that's a weird you know that's what it is but Walking in the street, I don't remember people reading newspapers <laughs> as they walked down the street. Or I, I, I felt like there were these public spaces where there was chance encounters between strangers. Mm-hmm. Um, that now, you know, you kind of you have to be a dog person or something to mm-hmm. have those experiences. Well,
1: I, I I agree with you on that. I, I, that's um, and I feel uh, I don't know if this was intentional or it's just you know it's just serendipity. But I was like, as I was reading the book, I was like, this feels like a little bit like those psychedelic uh, arguments the the tune you know turn on, tune in, drop out, and then of course, and then you like get to Leary at some point. Um, and and a lot of that was pushing against some of these ideas that you you're talking about and. Uh, that was one way of doing it. Um, yeah, of like saying, "Well, I'm just gonna just disconnect and and uh, go on a psychedelic journey." Um, but then you know, the internet is a psychedelic journey, and um, you, I could tell. It is.
0: I mean, the internet is a psych. I mean, and that was what Leary used to talk about. He said that the that the internet was was the new acid. You know, that it was going to be the new the new LSD. And it is, it's just as powerful as LSD on a certain level. But um when you take LSD, and this was again, Timothy Leary said the thing that the 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 way to make sure that you have a good trip is to to be conscious of your set and your setting. That means your mindset that you have going into it. In other words, if you're if you've got a mindset of panic or evil or fear, um then you're going to extend that. You're going to magnify or amplify that, and then you're setting. Where are you taking the drug? You know. So if you're taking, you know, LSD in, uh, you know, in, in, uh, uh, you know, in a war zone or a refugee camp, or you know, you're gonna you're gonna magnify uh, some some horrific, uh, uh, her- horrific phenomenon in your in your perception. So mm-hmm. you've got to kind of have to think about both, and. America now is essentially we're living in a psychedelic substrate. Mm-hmm. We're living on these platforms, and we have the mindset of um, extraction and uh, and and individuality, and we have you know the setting of of you know this sort of uh, 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 American economic. Uh, you know, collapse and powerlessness. These are two weird uh, well, they're they're not optimal. They're not the optimal set and setting to promote. You know, whatever the great Gaian collective mind <laughs> and uh, new compassion between people. You know, it could be adjusted. Could you imagine if before you went online, okay. if everybody took a moment to say, I'm now going to move into a very heightened, magnified state of consciousness where I'm potentially connected to all things at once. So let me let me bring the most sacred mindset and intention to this next session. Mm. But we don't. And now we don't even go online anymore as a thing. We live online. We live connected. So it's not even something that you can do consciously. You're just in there swimming around. And then meanwhile, we've populated this place. We've populated our tripping zone. We've populated our acid trip with with. Demons, really, with little demons, with algorithms that are designed to use everything they know about our, our psychology to mine for exploits and then modify our behavior on behalf of giant, headless institutions that only mean to extract our value from us. What is that? That's a bad trip it's wild
1: because I, in that era of the the psychonauts, and they were all very much really into the idea of the cyberpunk ethos, and they welcomed the internet as you uh, were detailing. You know, they they were looking at it as like this is the way to get away from the information gatekeepers. This is a way. Uh, Larry said it's power to the pupil. Now you put what you want in your head, and it was a way to become um, the idea that the that the that. that, that I think it would be so horrific to imagine that this psychedelic space that you've worked so hard to uh, create could then be turned back into a profit model and and colonized by these forces would be the idea that you could like colonize the, the actual acid trip itself is uh, is really terrifying and weird. Uh, nightmares type I concept for the right. people and 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 they yet- did,
0: but that goes back to the first thing we were talking about was you know, we watched as the acid generation was co-opted by, you know, uh, self-actualization and personal improvement and self-help and the whole West Coast new age market. Um, and that was the original to us anyway, that was the sellout. It was like, oh my God they they're worse than their parents mm-hmm. you know? All right and uh, so so i i i we didn't we didn't take that into account when building this thing out
1: and now we take a break from our show for a word from our sponsors it's a new year Which means it's not only time to reflect, it's also time to set goals for the year ahead. Whether that means discovering new interests or expanding your knowledge on specific topics, the Great Courses Plus has you covered. You know, I love the Great Courses Plus. I actually use this. It's one of those secret weapons I feel like I have in my repertoire of things that I look at and listen to. This online learning service offers Thousands of lectures covering everything from psychology to history to science to personal development. The list goes on and on and on and on. I can spend 20 minutes listing off all the different categories of stuff you can put into your brain with this service because there's something there for everyone. And they're taught by the best professors and experts from the top universities and institutions around the world. So you know this information is reliable. You know it has been curated and doted over and edited and and captured on film and audio for you to get the most out of it. And here's something that I rarely say about this service, but it's like maybe the best part of it. It's timely. It's timely. Here's a course right now that just came out. I think you should listen to this, watch it. I'm going to. It's called Fighting Misinformation, Digital Media Literacy. The first course is called The Misinformation Threat, and it says right in the description, democracy depends on a well-informed, discerning electorate equipped to judge the validity of information available. And I can't say any more. I'm very passionate about this issue. I feel like this is a very important skill set. It is a very important literacy that we should have in the modern era. And it's strange to me that social media has been around for more than a decade. The internet's been around for longer than that. And yet still right now in this moment, there are nefarious actors all around us. Some of them not even meaning to be nefarious who are seeding our public discourse with information that is simply not accurate, not true, or more complicated than it's presented, or it's presented as one-sided or one-dimensional. And there's just simply ways of seeing things and vetting them that It seems to me can be taught and learned and passed around. And that is what this course does. You will learn in these lectures, which are about 30 minutes long each, the evolution of media and misinformation, misinformation and the brain, seeing through visual misinformation, countering fakes and stereotypes in media, journalistic verification skills, assessing science, assessing health, technology, the future. This is something I think you and me and everyone else should just... Put right into our brains so that we can be better citizens of the world, the internet, and our individual nationalities, I think this is a Great course. Plus. <laughs> Speaking of the Great Courses Plus, you should set a goal today to learn more this year by signing up for the Great Courses Plus. Do it today and you'll get three months of unlimited access for just $30. That's only $10 a month. This is a huge, cool, great deal for people listening to this podcast only. And to get three months of unlimited access for just $30, all you have to do is go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart and do that right now. Don't wait. Get all the details at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And one more time so it gets in your brain and stays there, thegreatcoursesplus.com. Slash smart. And now we return to our program. My name is David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And this is the second part of our interview with Douglas Rushkoff. Well, let's, let's let's then let's move into because uh, I know th- I want to before we run out of time talk about well what should we do about this and what what are our options and what should our uh, what is the the what is the nature of the Renaissance that you talk about in the book? Um, you say there's a line in the book, and I'm paraphrasing. You say socially fulfilled p- people need less money and they feel less shame. They, they behave less predictably. Predictably, and they um, act more autonomously, which is that whole idea of like, you know, shake yourself out of the matrix and look around and see that it is, uh, you know, you're living in an uncanny valley. There's this other way of being. Um, and in a world that is run by algorithms with this profit motive and these headless corporations who are uh, who are taking advantage of our altered state of consciousness, um, I'm going to just sort of sit back and want to hear you talk about some of the things that you suggest are ways to to enter into a renaissance where we've we've had the revolution now we need to figure out which ideas are worth keeping from previous eras and which ideas are worth iterating on and what is um by way of getting into it i want to talk a, a little bit about uh, autonomy versus um autonomy and interdependence as the way you frame it as individualism versus conformity which seem like these uh, extreme ways of, of like dealing with this new place and just uh, just start from there and we'll get into this last part of the of the book
0: i mean i guess i was looking at you know the 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 sort of the extremes uh are, are, it's really hard for people to maintain a sense of you know autonomy And connection to others at the same time. You know, it's tricky. It's almost like family dynamics. How do you be yourself and be part of this other thing? Mm -hmm. And I feel like as civilizations, we tend to err on one side or the other. So America has erred on the side of strident individualism. You know, your freedom as an individual and all that. So we've lost our shared values and our cohesion, our ability to coordinate with each other. And then you look over, say, I mean, maybe stereotypically, uh, but you look at China, you know. And I, I think back to the, the, opening ceremony at the the Beijing Olympics, and they had like a thousand people doing Tai Chi in perfect unison mm-hmm, in <laughs> <remember>. this giant <laughs> giant circle, and I was like, whoa, there's, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, you know, and and that they they were sort of demonstrating. Look at the the beauty and the pleasure in this perfect sort of synchronized conformity. Mm-hmm. You know, as a uh, uh, as a way, and either one is sort of too is too extreme on its on it on its own you know one is sort of denying uh, uh one is authoritarian in that it's denying the 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 individual and the quirky and the strange it doesn't it doesn't celebrate that and the other is is authoritarian in that by maintaining the the uh, illusion of individuality between all people and everybody going for their own goals you can you know uh uh Pretend that you're that you're promoting liberty uh, through some you know Hayekian economic perfect you know everybody's an individual acting in their own economic interests and this will yield the greatest good for all and it doesn't you know it just yields everybody on the block owns their own lawnmower and nobody shares and <laughs> we destroy the planet because we're consuming too much and we don't know our neighbors and we don't have the joy of sharing or the things that bond community so you know in either one. You 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 kind of lose. So what I'm trying to help people do is to is to see how to hold both, you know, not either either extreme, but to to understand the expression of their individuality and uniqueness as something that happens in the presence of others, you know, that happens uh, that happens with the group rather than. Than alone, you know, and to see yourself as as on this team, and there's all these different utility players, and you find, you know, what position are you kind of playing today, uh, for for the group rather than uh, what's in it for me today.
1: Hmm. Well, this so uh, I I wanted to bring that up because it segues into. Um, what this sort of prescriptive advice you have toward the end? Um, well, I, I recently finished a project where I did a lot of research into conspiracy theorists and uh, and how they how they interact on, online. And uh, Tom Stafford, a cognitive scientist, had told me that um, one of the elements of conspiratorial thinking that has and the reason that it has risen to the to the top of our collective conscious here recently, and even infected our politics at a, at a new level, or at least the more salient level, is that. In his like um, framing of it, when we're online, um, you you said something similar in the book, in that we have these evolved social mechanisms, and but in this context, you can feel a certain way, and then that can be algorithm, al- algorithmically driven toward the the ends of the corporation or whatever entity is, has us inside their walled garden. And he was saying that it was. Um, These people are talking to each other in an environment, whether it's like a subreddit or whatever, where they feel like they're in a community. They feel like they're having an exchange of ideas and that they are coming to a consensus and they're figuring things out. And he said that, but they're not actually in a community. They just are getting the feeling that they're in a community. Um, But they're really alone and they're isolated. And because, um, and so they're they're basically alone together, right? Right. Uh, And... And in doing so, it's not like a a group of doctors who are like, someone says, I may not, they are scientists who say this idea looks like it's not working out, the evidence is starting to point in the other direction, and they update. A conspiratorial community doesn't update. Everyone's independent interpretation of the evidence is as valuable as anybody else's, as long as they stay collected. And so, just the tribal aspect of it is what is being pinged. and it feels like you know that's a dangerous place, and it and it seems almost like a, a stop, a intermediary step in toward the future that you're imagining. Where how do I be remain an individual, but also have community? I guess I'll just fo- I'll stick with these people who are like minded, and and then we have a community, and then that community is now antagonistic toward this other community. It feels like that's the space we're in right now. What's your reading of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, you can look at online communities as subscriptions to particular conspiracies. <laughs> and it's really the the thing that the internet does, just like reality TV does it, is it decontextualizes everything. So how are we going to interpret this picture? How are we going to interpret this sequence? And in some ways, the community that you pick online are the other people who put the picture together in the way that you do. So, okay, George Soros is a, a, you know, a globalist, Jew, internationalist, something who's funding protests, and that, that's my group. Or okay, uh, uh, you know, Donald Trump's people are are what, what did she call irascibles? What was the word she used? Intolerables? Um, uh, deplorables? Deplorables. There
1: you go, <laughs> irascibles. <laughs> the irascibles.
0: <laughs> I think that, that irascible is actually a compliment. Yeah. Deplorable.
1: You, your next book should be called the irascibles
0: The I like that. <laughs> Nobody uses that word anymore. Do you bring they? it back. Bring it back. There you go. And you know, and I could put um, I could put like Spanky on the cover. <laughs> Because he was an irascible rascal yeah. um perfect, uh, oh my God, that's an aside, but that that so if your online group are going to be the other people who put together the picture the way you do, then all you're using your online group for is to reinforce the arbitrary mosaic that you've assembled um that's weird, you know, no, and that's not it's not community in the traditional sense, but it is serving a need. It's right. It's helping you see, uh, it's helping you, you reinforce or confirm your reality. And unfortunately helping you see it as the way things are rather than as one provisional understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, what I was hoping was that, that, we would, that the internet would help everybody see that their interpretation of reality is just one of the reality tunnels. You know, more of a sort of Robert Anton Wilson perspective on Mm. the world, where everybody is in their own tunnel. Everybody puts the picture together, and it's fascinating. Oh, how do you see it? Oh, how do you see it? How do you see it? We all see it differently, and the fact that we all see it differently helps us know that none of us is really seeing it. And what these little groups do online is the opposite effect is it like it becomes your um uh your group's understanding of things it becomes cultish becomes the way it is rather than a way to understand it and once we're there then we're not human anymore Mm -hmm. then then we're you know Then we're trying to interpret reality with the, again, with the almost historical validity, the literal historicity of the algorithm.
1: Yeah, um, um, my friend Alistair Kroll, um, who uh, uh, writes about this kind of stuff, he he told me once that on the Internet, if you say you want a grilled cheese sandwich, you're not actually presenting an argument for a grilled cheese sandwich or the value of grilled cheese sandwiches. You're saying, help me find the grilled cheese room because – that's really what I want. I want to, you know, I want to find the like-minded grilled cheese enthusiasts. And, and so, when you proclaim what you want, you're helping the machines find the group you want to be part of, as opposed to the machine uh, helping you have a conversation in the group that you're already in. And um, and I thought about that because toward the end of the book, you really make this bold statement of saying you, you bring back the statement of find the others. And a lot of the book is about um, our. Our, our desire for connectedness and all of our biological proclivities for being good at being connected and getting the most out of being connected in and community and, and and the weird messiness of being people is uh, being subverted by the very things we created to encourage that. And uh, So I'd, I, I want to go there before we head out and, and, and give you a chance to... Um, give us some prescriptive advice and some optimism and some suggestions and where you think we could go with this and what we could do to alter the course. So what should we do about all this? And we can start with find the others, but what is your suggestion for um, mindfully uh, altering the course of what we're doing with this technology?
0: Well, uh, I'm real fractal about this. I really believe that small actions make a difference and trickle up it's really hard to do super small things and as you do them you kind of force the issue with the rest of your with the rest of your reality and way of living but i mean yeah the call of the book the main one is find the others and it starts by finding the others who are like you but then it means understanding what the other really means is the others find the others find the humanity in other people and right now the online universe is really good at helping us see other people as adversaries and what i would like the internet to be more tuned toward is helping us see our supposed adversaries as other people you know and then how Hmm. how how do you do that um it's that's not rocket science that's just as easy just just as easy as 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 uh as, as what we're doing now. Um, so that's my main call is find the others look at, you know, if you're, <clears throat> if you're a, a Bernie person, learn to see the humanity and the fear underlying the, the Trump person's position. <clears throat> They're not insane. They're 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 acting intensely human in a very difficult situation. So see them as humans rather than focusing on these you know bizarre ideologies that that we all believe. Um, meet your neighbors. <laughs> you know, it sounds crazy, but
1: That's Americans crazy don't know talk. who they,
0: It's crazy. <laughs> I know they don't know who their neighbors are. You know, meet them. Um, celebrate your weirdness, your difference. Um, some of it's super simple. Get an ad blocker on your, you know, and uh, spend less time online, spend more time, um, touching people, looking in their eye, make eye contact, establish rapport, get into small groups with other people. You know, that's the real meaning of the word conspiracy is to breathe together. That's Mm. today. That's a conspiracy. Be in a room with other people engaged with one another and you are I mean as, as capitalisms concerned you are part of the problem you're not consuming anything you're not producing anything you're just enjoying other people Wait a minute stop you know <laughs> those people's time is value to our platform Stop talking to them enjoying them having sex with them and let them get back on one of our platforms. Um, I think we can reform education. You know, right now we're lo- still looking at education as an extension of the market. We want to put in as much technology in the classroom as we can to help prepare our kids for these jobs of the 21st century. And we have to remember that's not what education was for. Education was compensation for a life spent working. It was about learning how to read and write and think so that you would have dignity even though you had to work. Down in the coal mines. So, what does that look like? What does it mean to spend as little time on machines as possible and as much time modeling, uh, modeling a, a life of learning for for young people? And I guess you know, most importantly, before we you know program humanity out of civilization. We should look back on what values did we leave behind when we had the Industrial Revolution? What values did we leave behind that we want to retrieve and embed in the digital landscape of the future before it's settled? You know what values do we want in there, and how do we how do we program for that rather than just programming for extraction?
1: It's so good, I, and, I, and I I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed feeling challenged at certain points, and then going, and then finally uh, getting bowled over by your arguments, and huh. um, and also I was like, oh my god, look at this optimism, um, <laughs> which felt really nice. Um, yeah, I
0: tried to make it as hopeful a book. I mean, today. Arguing that humanity has a chance of avoiding extinction is an optimistic argument.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> totally true. It's totally true. But it's, it's
0: good because we've
1: gone through these other stages. We've had the, the the era where we were scared we were going to die of nuclear holocaust. We've had the... the the you know pie in the sky stuff back and forth we've had all these we we get to layer all this stuff on top of each other and now we were like okay like I like the idea of taking a deep breath and saying what is worth retrieving from before that we may have blown past in this desire to, to bust everything apart um, right. and I really dig that view tour in, in the book it's really nice
0: oh thank you um,
1: the book is. Uh, Team Human, and you've got a podcast. Team Human, and I will I will plug all your stuff. I'll edit the end of this so that we, I have all your plugs in the end. Cool. So you, don't, you don't have to go through all that. I just want to tell you, thank you so much for your time. It's a real pleasure to actually get a chance and chat with you, man.
0: Thank you. <laughs> H-N-D, H-N-D,
1: that is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode at youarenotsosmart.com. You can also find previous episodes of the podcast there. And you can find them at Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere else they stick podcasts these days. If you would like to know more about Team Human, you can go to teamhuman.fM where not only you will learn more about Douglas's book, but you'll also find out that there's a podcast and there's a whole project, live shows and all sorts of other stuff. Head there, teamhuman.fm. You can find more about Douglas Rushkoff's work at rushkoff.com. That's R-U-S-H-K-O-F-F. You can follow me at David mcraney on Twitter. You can follow the show at NotSmartBlog on Twitter. And of course, you can follow the show on Facebook. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This interstitial music is by Banjo-pocalypse. Please support the show over at Patreon. If you are so inclined, it's patreon.com slash you are not so smart.